So the challenge that I have taken on with Changing Narratives Africa is to change mindsets about Africa using food as a way to build bridges. And why I picked food is because I think we connect in so many ways as human beings and food is one of the most powerful ways. And the way I've been totally inspired by what the Japanese have done with sushi uh, 20 years ago it was not uh, available at every grocery store in America. There were no sushi restaurants in Charleston, North Carolina or South Carolina. But today, sushi is actually ranked number one in the world. Japanese food is ranked number one in the world. And I realized that African countries have some of the best food in the world, but most people don't know. Want to boost your productivity and decision-making? Get vital insights for each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to binfanning.com slash insight. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Lead the team nation. Wow. Hold on to your hats. I've got a great episode in store for you today with Ndidi Akankwo Unelli. Um, who actually joined the Rockefeller Foundation Board of Trustees in 2019. She's an expert in social innovation, African agriculture, nutrition, entrepreneurship, and youth development. We're going to dive into those in just a second. She has over 25 years of international development experience and is is a recognized serial entrepreneur, author, public speaker, TEDx speaker, and consultant. Over the past 14 years, Ndidi has focused exclusively on transforming the African culture and nutrition landscape. No small task. She's also executive chair of Sahil Consulting and co-founder of AACE Foods, which produces a range of packaged spices, seasons, and cereals for local and international markets. Ndidi has propelled the growth of a catalytic business. Her latest startup is Changing Narratives Africa, committed to changing a global mindset about Africa by showcasing the continent's contributions to the global food ecosystem, to the pioneering work of her dynamic people, their innovations, and products. She sits on numerous boards, and she's authored the book Social Innovation in Africa, a practical guide for scaling impact, and Food Entrepreneurs in Africa, Scaling Resilient Agricultural Businesses, both published published by Rowledge. She's also author of Working for God in the Marketplace. And then Ndidi also holds an MBA from the Harvard Business School, an undergraduate degree from, uh, with honors from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Ndidi, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. Great to be here. Yeah, we were, this is going to be so fantastic, y'all. When we were we were uh, just getting on here, we were having a little chat about some of her travels. One was actually recently to a conference in Charleston, South Carolina, which, sorry, I missed you there. It's not like a cool conference. And then actually going to the World Economic Forum a few weeks before that, and we started talking about network. I mean, you're obviously running in some pretty high circles, including, uh, I believe, at the World Economic Forum, a fireside chat with Al Gore. What, what is a tip for leaders out there? who are interested in building up their network? Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Ben. And I have to say that, you know, 
the number of steps to building an international network. I have been extremely fortunate um, to be in the right rooms and to have lots of champions, mentors, and role models who have supported me along the way. Um, but one tip I would say is stay in touch with people, stay connected mm. to people. Some of my biggest mentors were my professors from the Harvard Business School who have opened doors for me and counseled me, my classmates from mm. Business school have been phenomenal friends along the way. Um, so definitely stay in contact with people. Maintain your network. Your network is almost as valuable as anything else in the world. And they have to mm. be authentic, deep, and valuable relationships built, built on mutual trust and shared values. Um, and then beyond that, develop an expertise in something. Um, mm. I have developed an expertise in, in agri-food, uh, uh, nutrition, um, and that has definitely uh, stood out. Um, and right now, as the world faces a major food crisis, my expertise is being called upon. Um, so it's one thing to be a generalist, but it's another thing to be recognized as an expert in something. And that wow. really helps you build a platform, amplify your voice. And the third thing is write. I've written a lot of op-eds and books, and I'm starting to write a lot more because I believe mm. that African voices have to be visible, um, and hmm. heard on the global stage. And so those are all tips that I would share at this time. I, I love that. We're going to dig into more on the African agricultural side. So we've got a lot of questions there. But just framing this up, so you're doing a fireside chat with Al Gore. Uh, that's that's a pretty big deal uh, in my mind. And, and I like what you said. You said, hey, look, you know, it's about keeping in touch with people. Maybe Al is one of those people. I don't know. And uh, certainly having that expertise. So when they think of Ndidi, Ndidi, they, they say, hey, African agriculture. So if they see anything with African ag agriculture, they're thinking about growing in the region. They're thinking about you first. Uh, what, so with all the hundreds or thousands of contacts of people that you run across, what's your, what's your strategy? Are you very organized and strategic and structured about your follow-up or how, how do you approach that? Well, it's interesting, you know, um, I used to be a lot better than I am now about <laughs> following up, but I, I have a rule of thumb for all my staff. I say within 24 hours of meeting someone, send them a message, um, mm. send them an email, following up, reminding them about the conversation and staying in touch with them. I can't say that I, I practice what I preach all the time now, but that's something that my team members do quite religiously. Um, the second is, you know, for your old time friends, definitely send a message at the end of the year. I learned this from one of my professors at Harvard Business School. She, you know, is much older and much more experienced and exposed than I am, but she sends me um, a Christmas message with a picture of her family and what they've accomplished um, and what they've experienced in the past year. And I learned that at an early age. So that's also a way to keep in touch with people who mm. you might have been out of touch with for a while. I believe we have networks and extracurricular professional and, and in our family backgrounds. And many times we don't, um, manage those relationships, staying visible and staying in touch, caring for people, showing them mm -hmm. um, love, but also um, staying, keeping them posted on what you're doing in your life um, so they can do the same uh, with you. Yeah, I like that so much because it really goes to show it doesn't have to take a lot, but I think having a framework and I like the whole end of year message whether it's a christmas or if it's if you don't celebrate that it's like an end of like a new year's thing having that kind of structure having that list that you can continue to build upon and modify 
I think it's really helpful. So you have to push a couple buttons at the end of the year, hopefully. Uh, and then this idea of this 24 hour follow-up rule, I, th I think that's a great, great way to do it. Now, does that follow-up typically take place over email, a phone call or text? How do you approach I it? Email is the preferred method because okay. it's less invasive and people can respond when they want to and when they get, get around to, they don't feel like you're kind of disturbing them. I, mm -hmm. I always tell people, please don't send me a text or call. Well, <laughs> I prefer yeah. an email, um, especially when you go to a conference and you speak to thousands of people. If everyone called you the next day, then you're really overwhelmed. Um, with uh, follow-ups. So I find email is, is preferred for me and I do the same for others. Excellent. Excellent. So we're going to move into something else right now, but I want the listeners to make sure they take that away. So there were some other big names that NDD was talking to me about that we're not going to talk about on the air right now, but she, let's just say she's got a very impressive global network. And she's, and, and she said the impressive, uh, or she said the word global too, right? So you're not just seeing these people walking down the street in your hometown, you're maintaining this work and how valuable that is. And so I think one of the things for the, for the leaders to think about is how they can be more intentional about that and have a framework. And I love this rule or this, this habit that you have for you and your team of following up quickly. Uh, and because you never know how, how those relationships will come around. Yeah, so so we've we've talked about your global network, and we're going to talk more about Africa. But what I'm really curious about first, before we get into changing narratives, Africa, and why it's so important, is how did you become an expert in African agriculture and nutrition entrepreneurship in the first place? Like, what's been your path? Yeah, so the amazing thing is that I didn't study agriculture in school, as you mentioned, Ben. I went to the Wharton School and Harvard Business School. So I had a generalist background, mm -hmm. uh, but I had a passion for food um, and consumer goods. So when I worked at McKinsey in the Chicago office, my clients were mostly in consumer goods. As a child, agriculture was my favorite subject in high school. And I had my first biz small you know, farm in the back of my house at a young age, but I hmm. just didn't think it was a very lucrative profession. And where was that? Where'd you grow up? In Nigeria. I grew up in Enugu in the southeastern part of Nigeria. Okay. Um, my mom is American. My father is Nigerian and they're both professors. So we lived on a, a university campus that had a large yard. Um, so I had a farm in the back of my house and uh, really enjoyed it, but always thought like most people do, agriculture is not very lucrative. Um, I can't really make a difference. And so went into the traditional path of you know, Wharton undergrad, Harvard Business School, McKinsey Consulting. But when I was at McKinsey, I actually focused on consumer goods and some of work with some of the biggest um, names in the food industry in the United States. Um, and then in 2000, I had the opportunity to move back to Nigeria to help start up an entrepreneurship development organization called the Fate Foundation. I was 25 at the time. And through that opportunity, ended up starting to work with a lot of entrepreneurs in the food and agriculture landscape. Africa is not naturally endowed for agricultural excellence. You know, everything grows on the African continent. We have 86% of the world's arable land on our continent. Most people don't know the size of Africa. They don't know you can put the entire United States, China, and major countries in Europe, at least four major countries in Europe, on the landmass called Africa, mm. uh, because most of our maps are not drawn to scale. <laughs> so they show Africa as a relatively yeah. small continent. Yeah, we know that actually... who, people who drew those were trying to sort of exactly. overgrow, over, like increase the size of exactly. North America. North America is much smaller. Yeah. 
Exactly. So, yeah. so you have 86% of the world's arable land on the African continent, and most things can grow on this land. Uh, and I realized if we're really going to create jobs and address food insecurity, um, Africa could feed itself at the world. Um, and this really attracted me to the food and agriculture landscape on the continent. I also then started to read and study and work as an entrepreneur in that space and learned by doing. Um, and since then have definitely deepened my knowledge and my companies, and I've started four companies in this food landscape, have been able to serve as catalysts in the ecosystem, not only launching initiatives, doing mm -hmm. strategies and policy documents, but also implementing ecosystem solutions in dairy and seed systems and different value chains like rice and maize, which is mm -hmm. corn um, and soya. So we've done a lot of really interesting projects um, to transform the lives of people and to transform countries. Well, and what's your favorite part of doing that? It's the impact on human life. Um, for me, it's instantly gratifying to know that through what you've done, you've helped create a sustainable job. Um, you've helped empower people. And I'll give an example. Our food company, Ace Foods, uh, processes spices, seasonings, and complementary food source from 10,000 farmers. When I go for the Christmas parties and I see all our staff and their children, you know, that because of this job, you've, they have health insurance. They have a warm meal. You know, they have additional uh, literacy programs. Um, their lives have been transformed. They can uh, educate their children. Um, you just see the impact on multiple uh, generations because of one job that was created. Mm. And that ripple effect in the agriculture sector is amazing because not just the staff, it's the farmer that they source from. It's the distributor that sold the product and it's the consumer that enjoys the product. So there's an entire value chain effect through one, yeah. one uh, person in the value chain. Get a simple tool to approximate your cost of turnover in 10 seconds or less. Right now, go to benfanning.com slash turnover. Did you know the average cost of turnover is $235,975 per employee per year? If you're like most leaders, you don't know your number. Go to benfanning.com slash turnover right now and download this simple tool to start getting a handle on this catastrophic cost. Yeah, I love that. And it's such a meaningful, so I asked that question. I love how you took it there because so many times leaders, they get so into the work, they forget about the impact. And I love in your, in your example there, you're thinking upstream from who supplies the farmers, the farmers and their families, and then the downstream of the people that are benefit. And so it really is, is a wonderful call to action and deeper meaning and purpose of uh, what you're going about doing. And I think leaders in general, often forget to make that connection for their employees. So, so it's, it's a missed opportunity. Definitely. Definitely. Do you, so one of the things that really struck me about changing areas of Africa is the word mindset. Uh, you, that was one of the initial things. It's like, Hey, we're, we're out there to change the mindset of leaders around the globe in terms of how they, my impression is perceive African agriculture, right? And, and what the opportunities are. Um, and yes, am friends. I saying that? Am I, am I in the right? It's even deeper than that. You know, I, I mentioned that I came to the U.S. 30 years ago to start college. And mm -hmm. people used to ask me, you know, do you live in trees and huts? Um, and uh, they'd say mm -hmm. to me, oh, my mom used to say, finish your dinner. They're starving children in Africa. 
Um, and so the wow. face of Africa that I came to see in the United States mm -hmm. was a hungry child. The face of poverty was a female farmer from Africa. Now, what made me really sad is that 30 years later, my son just started college in the US and I asked him, what narrative would you like to change in Africa? And he said that we live in trees and huts. And I said, 30 years, nothing has changed about the way people view Africa. They still think we live in trees and huts. Um, and the truth, Ben, is that it's a single story and it's so dangerous. Uh, my mm -hmm. friend Chimamanda, who's a famous uh, author, talks about the single story. Um, where there is poverty in Africa, but there's poverty in the United States, right? There are extremely yes. wealthy people in Africa, just like the extremely wealthy people in the United States. So the challenge um, that I have taken on with Changing Narratives Africa is to change mindsets about Africa using food as a way to build bridges. Um, and why I picked food is because I think we connect in so many ways as human beings and food is one of the most powerful ways. Um, the way I've been totally inspired by what the Japanese have done with sushi it was not uh, available in every grocery store in America. There were no sushi restaurants in Charleston, North Carolina, or South Carolina. But today, um, sushi is actually ranked number one in the world. Um, Japanese food is ranked number one in the world. Uh, and I realized that African countries have some of the best food in the world, but most people don't know. And I'll give you a few examples, Ben. Um, the average American doesn't realize that 70% of the world's cocoa comes from just two countries in Africa, Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana. So when they're having their chocolate drink or they're having their chocolate bar, you know, seven out of 10 times, it's made up of cocoa from Africa. You know, 50% of the world's cashews come from Africa. Sesame, 57%. Um, the birthplace of coffee was Ethiopia. Mm. And 18 countries in Africa produce some of the world's best coffee. Um, Coca-Cola was made of cola nuts from West Africa. Um, so if you've had a Coca-Cola today or coffee, you have Africa to thank for it. Um, that connection is not often made. And it's not just about, you know, commodities, like I've mentioned. It's also about processed food. Uh, many of us love tea, but tea lovers who love rooibos don't know that rooibos means the hills of South Africa. Yeah, um, wow. it's, so there's so many um, ways that you already interact with African food. Um, and when something is ingested in your body, that's a very personal connection that you have with a country. Um, so I'm trying to use food as a way to build bridges, but also to get more African products on global shelves. So when you go to the local grocery store, you pick up a product, it tastes really good. It's dried nuts or dried fruit. And you're like, wow, it's made in Nigeria. That changes your perception of Nigeria. Um, so we're doing a bunch of things around mm -hmm. docu-series, around getting products on shelves and around connecting entrepreneurs in the global food ecosystem with entrepreneurs working on the African continent. It sounds like a, a really powerful approach because you're surface up so to me, I'm thinking about how you're going about actually shifting mindsets and you start with a process of finding something that other people can relate to like food and they try it, they connect with it, that starts to change their perceptions because changing mindsets for people is extremely difficult. And there is an old adage of, you know, we don't change people, people change themselves. And so by putting the food out there, I can see that being an interesting way to sort of connect with them in a, in a different kind of way. And I think a lot about a documentary I watched called High on the Hog. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, it's on Netflix. Have you, have you, are you familiar with us? Oh, here you're clapping. So, I love High on the Hog. It inspired me. <laughs> well, that's a Charleston. It's not yes. all about Charleston, but one episode 
is all about Charleston. And uh, I found myself in tears multiple times, but it really bridges, it, it kind of brings full circle to what you're saying of, you know, we don't really realize how a lot of the food, especially in Charleston, really came from Africa. And a lot of times there would be a certain spin on it or something along those lines because we didn't have all the ingredients here in, in, in North America that they had in Africa, but it came from there. And so when you start to realize how connected we are, I can see that being a really powerful mechanism for that. Thank you, Ben. I actually am so excited that you've watched High on the Hog um, because when I watched High on the Hog, I said, I want to create something just like High on the Hog but on, on how oh. African food has changed the world. Um, uh, actually building on High on the Hog, and I'll use an example, okra. So okra, okay. which was featured on High on the Hog, is actually an Igbo word, and I didn't know that. I happen to be Igbo. That's my ethnic group. It's southeastern wow. Nigeria. And after watching High on the Hog, I went on you know, the internet and I looked on okra, the meaning, and it said first found in the colony of Virginia in 1647. This mm. word is an Igbo word. And it's been adopted by the whole world. And I was like, wow. And then I looked at, you know, seafood okra, which is eaten in Nigeria, and gumbo, which is eaten in New Orleans. And they look almost identical. You know, 200, 300 years later, not much has changed. Uh, and you just see that with so much food from the continent mm. that has gone to Brazil. So Brazilian food is heavily influenced by Nigerian food because there was that, you know, transatlantic slave trade. Caribbean food is heavily influenced by, you know, Ghanaian and other countries. Um, the same with, uh, with the United States. And so we're so connected as human beings and food mm -hmm. is such a powerful way to connect us. Food brings love. It brings joy. People have fulfillment and satisfaction when they eat. And when they eat food from other parts of the world, it broadens their horizons. Um, so I just really believe this is one entry point. So we're gonna be using media like High on the Hog. We're gonna get products onto shelves and we're already doing that. Um, and many global retailers are starting to partner with us. And then we're gonna connect entrepreneurs across continents so that they can be a lot more partnership. I love that. It reminds me of back in the day when I worked in corporate, uh, we had a lot of uh, manufacturing locations. And one of the coolest things we would do is around the, the Thanksgiving time period, although that was mainly celebrated, you know, in the U.S., obviously, but we would use it as a time as a company sort of get other, other offices around the world together. And people would bring their, their food, bring food in from their homes. And they'd bring like their family recipes and things of that nature. And I tell you, eventually that was stopped in the name of, hey, we're just too busy, which is rich, which is really, which a shame uh, there. But it really allowed me to connect with people in our manufacturing locations in such a more powerful way. And I think we really undervalue that food connection, uh, even in our daily lives, like the cover dish dinner or, uh, you know, bringing something to work that you made or something along those lines. And the fact that you, of course, scaled this up across the world is, is uh, pretty darn cool. Uh, what, what is your, like, what's one of your fondest memories about food? I have so many fun memories about food. And like you, Ben, I love sampling cuisines from different parts of the world. And sometimes we say it's an acquired taste, but the more you mm -hmm. learn about the history of food, the more you appreciate it, the more you learn about who made it, how it was made, um, the more you appreciate it. So, you know, as, I as I've started this work, I'll use two mm -hmm. examples. So we've all 
many of us have embraced quinoa. Um, we use it in salads and, and it's viewed as healthy. And there's an equivalent in our context called fonio. Mm. And fonio has actually been made popular by a guy called Chef Pierre Thiem, who has a restaurant in New York, in Dakar, in Lagos. Um, but he actually has taken fonio, which is an ancient grain, and he's basically making it cool. So mm. when I was at TED, uh, my first TED talk was in 2017, and he gave a TED talk. And in the middle of his TED talk, he passed around quinoa dish, uh, fonio dishes <laughs> across the board. And most people said, this looks like quinoa. But we tasted it and it was fonio. Oh. And it was so good. And I said, oh, I didn't bring any props for my TED talk. Of course, he had the highest standing ovation because he it was like, I'm telling you why this is such an important ancient grain. It's healthy, it's high in proteins, it empowers women because women sort it. And here you can have a taste of it. Um, and it was such a powerful way to sell an idea, but also to get you to taste the idea. And none of us who tasted it will ever forget Fonio. Well, and um, today, well, Fonio is sold in, in uh, supermarkets in the United that, States as well. That is such yeah. a cool story. And I want to mention, y'all, you can, food can be a leadership skill, right? Food preparation, how you discuss it, how you talk about it, it can be a way to connect your team. And we've just crossed the hundred episode mark on lead the team. And we have not, thank you. Thank you very much. We have not talked about food in this way. Uh, and I think that that's a new message. You know, people listen to the show for new ideas. And I think one of the things that I'm really taking away here is, Hey, we, if you're not thinking about food, you know, you're missing an opportunity. It used just to be, Hey, we're going to go out for a steak dinner and celebrate this, you know, whatever, which is okay. Yes, you can do that. But when you bring a more personal perspective and a more thoughtful perspective, you can get miles and miles more connection and more relationships. You can get a standing ovation at TED. Wow. Exactly. <laughs> ben, and I love the idea you have. We do potlucks as well at my, at my team where on national day, we have everybody bring their favorite dish and then they have to tell us about their dish. And it just connects mm. us in ways, like you said, that you could never believe. So it's, it's a very powerful tool. So I understand that, and you'd mentioned that 70% of your fellows are females, correct? In the, in the, uh, in the uh, Changing Narratives Africa organization, is that right? Oh, 70% of our entry, yes. So what we have is we, have, we, we started a, a Narrative Changer Food Fellowship. And the idea behind this was that we want to select entrepreneurs who are ready to get their food on global shelves. Okay. And so we had a call for applications for 100 entrepreneurs applied and we selected a small set of businesses and 70% of them are female entrepreneurs. And we're so proud of them. Not only are they female entrepreneurs and female leaders, but they also have women in their teams, majority women. And then they also have a very strong uh, pipeline of farmers who are also female. And why that's important is that, you know, when you often think about sectors like the food mm -hmm. ecosystem, you don't think about women who are contributing um, to the growth and success of this sector, female leaders who are building strong brands that are high quality and sustainable. And for me, that's critical. Um, so yes, we're very proud of the women entrepreneurs and in our ecosystem. And every year we're gonna be selecting more and more fellows um, who are ready to get their products on global shelves. So watch this yeah. space. We're starting in the DC, Maryland, Virginia area. One global retailer is piloting a project with us to get a little African island to their stores. Wow. And so bringing this full circle, Selena Cuff introduced us. 
and she had a great episode previously. She's the CEO or president over at Sodexo Magic. And she's connected to Africa in an interesting way with the African wine business. And right. what she shared with me was, I don't remember the actual statistic, but that most of the vineyards there are not owned by women. And there's only maybe one or two or three in the entire continent of Africa owned by women. And so she's making that facilitation for African wines. Does that similar uh, demographic play out in agriculture across the continent of Africa, where it's more of a, a male dominated uh, field or are or, or females gaining traction there? So I would say that just like in many parts of the world, you probably have female farmers in very specific value chains. So in vegetables and fruits, you mm -hmm. see a lot more female entrepreneurs. Um, but when it comes to processing and big business, the numbers start dwindling. Um, and that's the same in the U.S., right? It's, it's, you don't see women owning manufacturing companies that process food. Um, there's a lot of, uh, there are many barriers uh, around mm -hmm. access to credit, um, access to, yes. to land. Um, you know, there's bias in the industry. Um, and so it, it's quite concentrated in a, a few hands. And so what we're doing is, is really democratizing the sector, opening it up for all genders, empowering uh, women to take their rightful place by providing access networks, financing and support, and enabling them to scale their businesses. And so I'm really well, excited to see what they're able to do um, and how they can be role models for women in other parts of the world as well. So when's the time you had an unexpected twist or failure in your career and how did it lead to your growth or success on down the road? Huh. There've been lots of twists, Ben. <laughs> What's one of your favorite ones? Well, it's interesting. Um, I'll just uh, tell you one quick one. When we started our food company, Ace Foods, we had two issues. Number one, we launched with the products, jams were our first product. Um, and we actually had our brand name called Honor. And uh, we're going to do pepper sauces instead of to, to compete with Tabasco. We had uh, jams made up of all the best tropical fruits and vegetables you've ever imagined. And then we get a letter uh, from a, a firm, a much larger multinational saying, oh, your brand name is too close to ours. Um, you have yeah. to give up your brand name. And we had registered a brand name. It was going to be Honor, which means jewel in my language, Igbo. And so this was an issue, you know, we've built all this great branding strategy and, you know, we had started selling our products and we had gotten a rightful trademark um, oh. legally. Um, and so the board came together and it's always good to have a board, even as a startup. And they said, listen, you don't have the money, the time, the energy to fight this multinational. Give up the branding. Um, and it was a very difficult twist and mm. turn, but we eventually decided to give up the brand name and that company became one of our early customers through a B2B play where we we're selling them bulk spices. Oh. <laughs> wow, that, that's quite so, a twist. So yes, if you would have fought them, I doubt they would have become a great customer. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But it also shows that you have to pick your battles as mm. a business leader. Um, not every fight is worth it, right? Um, and then you have to think two years, three years, five years down the line, will this really matter? Um, what really matters right now? Um, what can you control and what is out of your control? Uh, we could have fought for a year and probably won, but we would have spent a lot of money, a lot of management time, and uh, we, have, we would have lost the potential customer, like you said, Ben. I love it. I love it. So 
a lot of wisdom in this episode. So I'm going to kind of recap. We talked about building your global network and how leaders need to be thinking about that with some great strategies. Then we got into something that I think is so cool, practicing the art of leadership with food. So leveraging food, your relationships, in your team meetings, and your connection exercises. We talked about picking your own battle, or sorry, picking the right battle. Don't pick all the battles, right? Prioritize because you want to make sure that you're focusing your energy in the right places. Um, what is a parting thought that you'd like to leave with, leave with the listeners today? Well, Ben, you mentioned I was your first CEO from Africa, and I would just love for your listeners to know that, you know, there are many people like me on the continent who are doing really great work, who would love to connect with partners and collaborators and other business leaders across the world. We have lots to share, lots to learn. Um, and we believe that, you know, Africa is the continent for today and the future. And especially as the world faces a global food crisis, the world can learn a lot from Africa. So this is a time for partnerships and for building mm -hmm. bridges. And I look forward to introducing many more African CEOs to your podcast, Ben, because I think it's it's Great. time for us to, uh, to form these bonds, to share and learn together. Where should they go to learn more about your, uh, I'll say your business or your network, your community and uh, how they can get, in, get involved? Well, there are many, many hats I wear, but I would say one is Sahel Consulting, mm -hmm. and our website is www.sahelconsults.com, sahelconsults.com. Mm -hmm. um, another one is Nourishing Africa, so nourishingafrica.com. It's a, pot, uh, a portal for about a million entrepreneurs in the food and agriculture landscape in Africa, um, and it has lots of data and information for those who are interested in this mm -hmm. sector. And then I just released a TED Talk I mentioned. So just Google Ndidi and TED and please watch the TED Talk because it's about the global food ecosystem, the cost of food and what each of us must do in the United States, in Africa, all over the world to ensure that we create a thriving, sustainable, just food ecosystem for all of us. Terrific. I'll make sure to get that in the show notes. So if you don't have that, you can just go check out the show notes and we'll have all the resources there. Ndidi, thank you for a fun interview today. Thank you so much, Ben. It's been great chatting with you. And next time I'm in your area, I will definitely come over for a warm meal. All we'll right. have some let's, jello fries. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Take care. Bye. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.